This podcast is sponsored by Rask Invest, Owen's complete guide to money and investing. Visit the Rask Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of the Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RASC Group's Financial Services Guide on the RASC Finance website. Sebastian Evans is Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer of NAOS Asset Management. Sebastian spends most of his time sifting through the smallest companies on the stock market. And when he finds the right opportunity, he is willing to take a very big stake and hold the shares for many years. Sebastian takes us through what he looks for in businesses and in management teams, the benefits of running a listed investment company, tricks and traps for small company investing, and his favorite podcasts. My favorite story from Sebastian is him asking friends and family for some help to buy Naos a decision which set him on a path to becoming one of Australia's most respected small company investors. Considering he is in his early 30s, I was very impressed with his level of insight, but also his transparency and humility. I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Sebastian Evans of Naos Asset Management. Sebastian, thanks for joining me on the show. No, you're right. Thanks for having me. When I was doing my research on you, I got to admit there wasn't as much content or information that I could draw upon um, as perhaps some of our pri- previous guests. So I'm going to be led by you with some of the, your history mm-hmm. and how you came to be in the position that you're in today. Yep. So let's go back to the beginning. Yep. Where did you grow up and where did your journey yep. towards investing begin? Yeah, so um, first of all, thanks for having me. But yeah, as I tell all of my investors when I'm pitching for money or shareholders, um, we're not the usual funds management business. The usual funds management business is, you know, I've worked at UBS or I worked at a big, big funds management firm and I mm. made so much money that I thought I'd, I'd leave and start my own. Um, it's the complete opposite of that. So I, I'm a Sydney born and bred, born in Manly, um, or grew up in Manly for a little bit and then moved around. And I, um, I suppose the only point that really matters is when I was very young, my, my parents separated, but a little bit different in the fact that my old man brought me up. Okay. Normally, it's not the case. Many, yeah. many, many years ago, and dad, dad was a broker, um, and he was the original managing director of Macquarie Equities, which so he always invested in equities. I was mm. always around it. Um, as I told you previously, I had no interest in getting into the industry. Mm. I always wanted to do something else. Um, at one stage, I was learning to fly and wanted to, you know, fly around the world, work for Qantas. Oh, or nice. whatever. Yeah. yeah. And then I suppose it dawned on me that. Maybe I remember the flight. Actually, maybe this probably wasn't for me. I don't know if I want to sit in a plane for you know fourteen hours and yeah. you know n- n- never, never be around home. And so I um, finished school, did a commerce degree. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't bright enough, and I was extremely lazy that I didn't get into Sydney or New South Wales. So I went up to Queensland, went to Bond, um, didn't even get into a commerce degree there. So I did, they made me do business. Is that Bond on the Gold Coast? Yeah, on yeah, the Gold Coast. So yeah, they made me. Do, do business, prove myself. So I had to get through stats and business mathematics, which at the time, it sounds easy now, but at the time I remember it was bloody hard um, and got through it. So I did my commerce degree, major in finance and international business. Um, and then I did my master's in applied finance 
And I came back down here and just sort of hit seek and thought, well, what am I going to do? And so I got a job at Bell Potter as basically like a, I suppose like a clerk, sort of like Mm. desk assistant, uh, which was fine, but sort of found out that wasn't the the first thing or the best thing that I wanted to do. I've always been reasonably, um, I like my autonomy, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. And so out of the blue, um, a person I've known for a very long time since, you know, since I was probably six months old, um, David O'Halloran, who's, who's my largest shareholder, um, approached me. I remember he gave me 10 books. He said, go and read these 10 investment books. Get back to me in six months and we'll chat. And so I read these books and you, you would know most of the books. Some examples perhaps? Oh, I suppose like you know, even some of the Warren Buffett. I remember he gave me the Warren Buffett essays. Oh, yeah. you know, so somebody mm-hmm. got someone to print them off for him and say, here are all the essays, go and, go and read them. And so I did that and then I approached him and he said, all right, well, um, why don't you work? He was at Southern Cross Equities, which is a broking firm. So he'd come and work with me as an assistant analyst. He was in research. I said, that's fine. But he said, actually, I've also have a small share in a firm called Naos, which was a funds management business at the time. Right. And I said, all right, well, I'll start there as a small cap equities analyst. And at the time, Naos was owned by, part owned by Southern Cross Equities. Mm-hmm. And I started in 2007 or 2007. And that was it. Um, but I suppose the bit that everything everything changed uh, was we only had about 40 to 50 million dollars at the time and the gfc came along and essentially you know changed the industry mm. as we knew it and it changed it for us because southern cross were bought out by bell potter which is a funny way of how the how the circle mm. works and they had an asset management business and they didn't want naos it was losing money um, a lot of our funds walked out the door so the funds went from 40 to 6 million um, and wow. it was put up for sale but i was lucky enough that um, I had the people around me, so family and friends um, gave me, didn't give me, but essentially contributed, I can't remember, I can't remember the figure, it was like $1.7 million wow. and said, here you go, go and buy the license, buy the name and let's see if we can get it to break even. Oh. And that was it. And that was that was sort of, that was 11 years or 10 years ago. And that's, it was me, me and two others. And at one stage, I didn't, I, we couldn't afford an office for the first three years. So I basically just, hmm. yeah, anyone who liked us and was willing to give us some space, that, w- that was us for the, for the first few years. We were talking off air just a moment ago yeah. and you were saying about, you're talking about your, your first experience giving a presentation in mm. front of some investors. Can yeah. You? So, yeah, I was telling you that was, so that was actually, so that would have been right after the, G- we were in the midst of the GSC and I remember, the person I was working for at the time at NAOS, um, I, I was all very new to this. But, you know, it's like, oh, we, you know, they normally hold. I remember we had one shareholder presentation. I think that was down at the one of the family, Intercontinental down in Sydney. And that, that's okay. the first one I saw, actually. So well, this is the second one. So that was fine. That was 07. Everyone was very happy. And then 08 changed. Then, you know, the few people left the business. And I remember the managing director and the chief investment officer said, why don't you come to our shareholder presentation? I was like, okay. It's like, well, where's this one? It's like, oh, it's down at you know, this golf club, we're using one of their rooms. Um, and I remember my first ever presentation, you walk in and I think there was a string quartet of four or five people and I think we only had about seven people turn up on like those <laughs> old primary school chairs as I remember when I went to primary school. Um, and uh, the first presentation I ever did, and I think uh, the first stock I ever spoke about was Redflex, which is a Melbourne stock yeah, right. and they make speed cameras. And that was 10 years ago, but that was, yeah, that was that, that would have been rock bottom. That, that was it right there. I mean... Uh, and to be honest, there's still one of those people 
who actually called the other day, um, is still a shareholder today, still an investor. You left an impression. Yeah, I think he put a hundred grand in. I remember after that, I think he might have put another hundred thousand dollars in, and that was it. And then he's been with us ever since. Oh, so, fantastic! Uh, That's yeah, a great story. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you, you said it's not. It's probably atypical for the funds management in, mm-hmm. industry for you to buy another business, mm. um, and especially during the GFC, would have looked pretty bleak. Mm. Can you describe um, what you were doing during the GFC in particular? Like, I, I believe that your performance was pretty good. Yeah. Um, what are some lessons learned there and, and I suppose along that, along that journey and that stretch out of the, yeah. the GFC? Look, I think the GFC is a funny one because I think everyone you speak to, I mean, the amount of planners and fund managers you, ever, you speak to now, everyone's like, I didn't lose money in the GFC. The amount of people that seem to tell you that's quite intriguing. You know, we don't shy away from the fact that we lost money in the GFC. I mean, you've got to remember I was very young. But I think the thing that I really learned coming, going into the GFC and coming out, and I think if you look at a lot of people's performance numbers, is really how you came out of it. I mean, that, that really separated mm. the winners from the losers, if you mm. want to say it like that. And it was really your ability to buy quality assets at really discount discounted prices and at like you know there were no buyers i remember buying some stocks and all it would have been all of 23 um you know you got directors with margin loans you know there was lots of that back in the gfc you know i remember challenger had a big one um you know just a lot of fund managers were losing money everyone was getting out of small caps a lot of fund managers just closed their small cap funds down so it was really your ability to say, well, this is a good asset regardless of the environment. Uh, so if we take a longer term view, we're happy to allocate um, to some of these businesses. And in hindsight, it was the best decision that we ever made because, you know, subsequently, everyone looks at it now and says it's obvious, but subsequently with all the quantitative easing and everything that's happened, it really put a floor under the market and equities have really rallied ever since. Mm-hmm. But that sort of coming out of the GFC in that first two year period, some of these assets... You know, if you look at CPA shares and things like that, I mean, they essentially doubled yeah. and tripled. Um, you know, so and that's and that's where we did very well. Um, in hindsight, though, was were you investing in small caps exclusively? Yeah, we've always done small caps. Yeah. So we had a we had at that time we had an absolute return fund which is larger, so more mid cap, which we've got now as well, which is our NAC fund. Um, so we will always only invest in micro to mid. Yeah. Um, but I put, I put a big disclaimer on it, excuse me, that um, we say micro and small, but if you compare our portfolio to a lot of others, um, it'd be very small. So I'm sure you get some people in here and say, I do small caps and they're billion dollar companies. When mm-hmm. I come in here, I say, I'm doing small caps. Like I'm meeting someone after this and their company, we own 20% of their company and it's capped at 25 million. Oh, wow. You know, like we really go small um, which sets us apart you'd almost find no other fund manager I would argue that takes the concentrated positions that we do in mm. in that smaller business I suppose yeah so when you said you touched on liquidity when you said that there were effectively no buyers for shares during the GFC yeah and now you you just mentioned Do the same yeah, yeah you take a 20% stake yeah. you're obviously very comfortable with no liquidity yeah very minimal some people say it's my age but no I'm, I'm a I'm a big believer that you know, when people talk about performance, it's funny now, everyone talks about liquidity. And in, in theory, liquidity shouldn't be part of the conversation, in my view. A lot of people disagree with this, right? Um, but if you look at a lot of people have done well over, over the years, for whatever reason, a lot of it's in private business where there's really no liquidity. Mm. So why should it really be any different in the equity markets, especially in some of these smaller businesses? You know, a lot of the 
more liquid businesses that you find are well-owned, you know, 15 fund managers own them, mm. you know, they speak to the market all the time, they're covered by every broker, you know, everyone knows what's going on. But our view is we're different because 99% of our funds are listed in licks or listed investment companies. And what that means is no one can redeem, unfortunately, or fortunately, from, from our funds. So that means we can look at a position based on its return profile and not its liquidity profile, where many fund managers operate funds or unit trusts and they'll take money through a PDS or a wrap platform. That's fine, but when money comes out they've got to start selling, liquidating all these assets. And that's where fund managers, in my view, especially ones that have done very well, and I don't, you know, it's, it's nothing wrong with this, is, you know, people, if you built up a business over a long time, it's probably human nature to take less risk and be more index focused um, to protect your business. Are you making the best decision for returns? Debatable. I mean, people will probably look at our last year returns and say, well, you were down 15%, so how can you say that? That's a fair comment. But my view is if you look at the longer-term returns, it, it does make a difference. Um, and we're at the stage where we're nimble enough, young enough, and we have closed funds that we can do these positions mm-hmm. that do put us out there. And, you know, and when they do go wrong, you do look like an idiot. Um, but hopefully you get more right than wrong. Yeah. Mm. You touched on... Um the closed-end nature of a, of a mm. lick or a listed investment company. Let's get everyone on the same page. Can you explain what a listed investment company yeah. is and how maybe it differs from an ETF or a managed fund? Or yeah. Like so that? yeah. So a lick, a listed investment company, is literally a company listed on the stock exchange that invests people's money into equities or debt or whatever, whatever the I suppose the framework is given by the board. What that means is, well, if you raise $20 million in a company, then you have $20 million to invest. You can't make that bigger or smaller. It's really dictated by your investments. Um, So that means if people want to get into that lick, then they've got to buy shares on the stock market. And if they want to get out, then they sell. Um, The other way you can run a funds management business is to run a unit trust, as I said. So that's unlisted. So basically that means you go to I think I'm allowed to say company names here, like RAP platform. So you get all Macquarie RAP or an MLC RAP and say, well, I want to allocate some money to this fund. So they take your $10,000 and put it into that fund and they issue you units. So essentially because they issue you new units, that fund gets bigger. Yep. Um, it's like your savings account getting bigger. So you've got more money you've got to deploy uh, and invest, which is fine. Uh, but if your fund gets too big, then that means you've got too much funds to invest and you've got to go invest in bigger stocks and things like that. Um, so people tend to shy away from licks, albeit they have been popular lately because they are hard to grow and hard to manage, whereby a unit trust is you can take money all the time, but they can get redeemed all the time. Yeah, yeah okay. And um, there's probably some other things about it The um, in the sense of like fees and expenses are slightly different and you've got a board, like you said. Yeah. Um, and there's also discounts and premiums that people are buying in and out. That yeah. The share price can be, I yep. suppose dislocate from the actual value of the portfolio that you're investing in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I want to fast forward from when you took over mm-hmm. NAOS and then it wasn't until, correct me if I'm wrong, 2013 or thereabouts that you launched your first Listed, lick. Yeah. lick. Mm-hmm. Was that because you saw the benefits and how it appealed to your investment philosophy? No, um, <laughs> not not that intelligent at that time. Okay. Um, no, so we, as I said, we managed we managed um, two funds, which was which went well. Our performance was good, 
obviously we wanted to get bigger because we're only small. We're running 35 million, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I remember, so you had to, unfortunately in Australia, and this is probably timely because of the Royal Commission, you know, you got to, you had to jump through a few hoops to get bigger. So, you know, for a fund to get bigger, you need to be on platforms. You need to mm. be rated. So I, w I went through the process, got rated by, a, 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 at the time was S&P, which um, mm. thankfully left Australia. So we got the rating <laughs> and then they left. Uh, but, you know, then you can go to the rating and go to a platform provider and say, well, I've got the rating now, put me on the platform. And they say, well, we'll put you on the platform, but you've got to show that you've got $10 million of demand. It's like, well, you know what, I'm 26. I'm learning the ropes here. My fund's $35 million. There's no way I'm going to find 10. No one's going to give mm. me $10 million of demand. So that didn't work. So I remember dad said to me as a broker um, and one of his, one of my other directors said, well, you know what, why don't we launch a listed investment company? And at that time, I had no idea what a lick was because we were the first lick to list after the Magellan lick, which is now run by Chris Mackay. Mm -hmm. So years ago, years mm. and years ago. Um, so we did that. So I remember we decided in November, I think we got our prospectus and everything lodged in about five weeks. And my chairman, David Rickards, who's my independent chair, I remember coming down here and getting the train with Dave, who always likes to use public transport. And we just pounded the pavement and raised the smallest amount possible of $17.36 million. And that was it. Huh. And that we got, we got it up. But in hindsight, it was the best thing we ever did because, you know, when you look at it, because it is closed, that was NCC. So that's our micro cap fund. And that's sort of what we're known for. It was the best decision we ever made because it is closed. We could make concentrated bets and our timing was excellent. Like our first two years of performance were, were really good. Um, and so we've grown that from 17 to 70. And then obviously we, now we have two other licks. Why don't we step now into your investment process? Mm -hmm. Give us the bird's eye view. Yeah. What, 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 I suppose what's the philosophy of the three funds? Yeah. And then we'll drill down. Yeah. So I think from a portfolio management point of view, the philosophy is, remember my roadshow slide. So, <laughs> you know, really to have a long-term uh, time horizon. And when I say long-term, we've had some investments in NCC that are still there. So they're six years old. Um, you know, we want to we want to work with management, be supportive, and I'm a big believer in compounding returns. I mean, some of your listeners, you know, if they've owned CSL shares or CBA shares mm. and they've let those compound, they're probably their best investments as opposed to trading around. Then over that is really management alignment. So a lot of the businesses we we back um, is a bit like my own business. Is we try to back people who they tend to be founder-led businesses that have a lot of skin in the game. So they've got a lot of equity. You know, this is really it for them. You know, this is their be-all and end-all, essentially. Um, and a bit like how I treat my own funds, all my money's in the funds. I don't have any stocks outside the funds. We treat our own investments like like we do with, with NAOS. And we try and keep it very simple. So we only invest in industrials. People say, why? We, obviously, we have an ESG screen. Um, but just as importantly is there's some businesses out there that I just can't value. Like, I'm, just, I'm not an expert in everything. My team's not an expert in biotech resources whatever um so if i can't put it on a piece of paper and explain it to you in you know, five minutes then it's probably not a great investment and that's sort of our portfolio structure how you pick a stock you know, everyone sort of tries to ask you know, how, you know you go through your checklist and your quant screen all that sort of stuff you know i, I, I tend to say there's it's a bit more of a, a science than a you know a set pro, a set sort of formula um and a lot of what i find is you know australian equity markets in my view are a lot, of, a lot of businesses that are listed are very low quality. So essentially, I think there's 2,600, this might be wrong, 2,600 mm -hmm. companies listed. 
you know, we run a screen. If you exclude the top 50, there's essentially, in our view, 100 to 200 investment-grade businesses. And when you mean investment-grade, like you're probably being quite lenient, um, okay. you know, that have revenue, it's mm. reasonably predictable, you can understand the business, all that sort of stuff, gearing, things like that. So there's a lot of listed businesses that are crap and there are a lot of listed businesses that list for the wrong reasons. People list businesses because... They need money, which means it's probably a business that can't generate enough free cash flow. Mm -hmm. Or they're looking to sell and get out, which is mm. probably another not so great reason. So due to that, we look for a lot of businesses that, you know, have delivered on commitments or statements. You know, they can deliver on what they said 12 months ago. I think it's a great one of the best things you can ever do as an investor is get go and get the presentation they gave 12 months ago and go through it before you meet with management. You just Sometimes you can look at it and you say, you made all these statements, we're here 12 months ago, and now it's something completely different. So you always look for consistency, you look for shareholder alignment, you look for businesses that have low gearing, um, and you look for you know, people that have a clear strategy. You know, They have a clear competitive advantage and where they want to be in four, five, six, ten 10 years' time. And then we, as I tell all my shareholders, we try and get 20% per annum through a cycle. But when you invest in some of these small companies that, like they can halve and they can double again. Um, you know, it's not easing being a listed business because I find that today, even more so than five years ago, people are just so focused on the next quarterly result or the next half yearly result. There's no incentive to reinvest. There's no incentive to make some of the harder decisions that are probably best for the business in the longer over the longer term. Everyone's everyone wants profit. Everyone wants a bigger dividend, mm. and that's all sort of they're really interested in. So you think it's getting worse. Yeah, I think it's hard. Yeah, yeah. And you look at our micro cap portfolio, we haven't added one new stock in a year and a half. Wow. Yeah, so when I say we don't trade, <laughs> we don't trade. You, you sort of took us through the, the process there a bit. You've, you've got 2,600 thereabouts. Yeah. Um, it's filtered down through a quant screen. Yeah. Then you have these certain criteria. Yeah. When you speak to management, I, I, I'm assuming that you speak to them quite regularly. Yeah. yeah. What, what are you looking for in the in the I suppose not just from like what you can read in an annual report in terms yeah. of alignment. What are you looking for from that person? You said consistency. Is there any other personal traits or anything that you look yeah. for? They're all different. So yeah. you can't say personal trait if I could <laughs> tell you some of, some of the conversations we have. And I think it's important. Like people say when you talk to management, like I, I told you I did my Perth Roadshow on Thursday and I think I spoke to three MDs okay. in the morning. Yeah. So we have a really close relationship, which is good, mm. good and bad. So, you know, when you look for personal traits... Um, you know, I would say what we look for, yeah, is alignment, obviously the industry knowledge. So some of them have worked in a similar industry. They have the contacts, they have the knowledge. You know, the ability to run a, like I said, I know it's hard, but the, really, the ability to run a public business, you know, is, is key. And that, you know, when people say public business, like what does that mean? It's like, well, you know, you set, you know, objectives, dividends, capital management is a big one. You know, how are you going to allocate your capital? Where's the best allocation of capital? Where's your highest return? as opposed to just sort of making poor short-term decisions um, and really proving to the market, as I said before, that you do have a clear competitive advantage. You are creating a competitive advantage by providing a superior service at a lower cost, superior service because no other service exists. You know, you're more nimble. You can you can offer a better product, whatever it is. It's got to be have a clear competitive advantage so you can grow and you can scale. I think the biggest thing I've always learned is you've got to, you've, you've got to invest in businesses that can scale. And you've got to invest in businesses that aren't in an industry that's going backwards. Because I've tried that a couple of times and you think it's so cheap mm. um, and, and it kills you. You just can't fight the tide. Yeah. Mm. The reason why I ask about management is because especially in small caps, 
governance can be in some instances perhaps non-existent yeah, so yeah, yeah, it's point. it's it's something that i focus a lot of my time on you talked about um acquisitions uh, in a recent blog post i think maybe ben wrote it yep um and you're talking about competitive advantage yeah. When you look at these companies and you're looking at the capital allocation, are you, are you looking for companies that are willing to reinvest in their competitive advantage? And do you, I suppose, get your guard up when they yeah, look when outside they of that? Yeah, outside, yeah. So now we always say our investment philosophy, if a business tends to do something that is completely sort of off-piste, mm-hmm. we tend to remove it from our portfolios. Um, but, you know, some great examples include, you know, we're a big shareholder in a business called Aniro. They do PR, uh, creative, strategic insight. You know, they've, they're now the largest tech PR firm in the world. So they acquired, they were weak in the US. So then they acquire a business in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. Yeah, a natural extension of what they do, a sound acquisition. Yep. They've known the woman, Barb's, uh, for, for years because they've worked together. You know, ticks. Right. You know, and, the, and the way you can sort of earn that, they go through the earn out is there's not a lot of capital put up front so it's quite de-risked from that point of view you know as opposed to a business even if it's a similar industry it might be 100% cash up front you might be gearing your balance sheet there are no earnouts. Um, there's no skin in the game all the staff are leaving um, you're not really getting any further extension of your product or your service or your customer base you're just buying earnings for a short-term kick you know they're the things that would worry us um, you know, governance and whatnot in small caps is a real issue. And I've definitely learned the hard way again more recently that it's becoming, especially for us as, you know, the, sometimes the biggest shareholder um, is a lot of these businesses aren't run for shareholders. They're run for, mm. for management teams. But I'm a big believer that it's changing. And it's changing because I think people care mm. and, and are willing to say, well, my voice needs to be heard. And whether or not you like it or not, you've at least got to listen to it. And if you disagree disagree to my opinion or thoughts, then at least tell me why and we can mm. we all want the best thing for this business. So let's let's talk it out. And so do you as the largest shareholder, do you take an active stance against management? Have you ever confronted them over issues and said Oh yeah. yeah. Had some shockers over the years, actually. Yeah, no, but even more recently, you know, I hate the word activist. We're not an activist fund. We're a supportive investor that wants to assist a business in growing, whether it's through capital or contacts or whatever it is, directors. But no, if, if we feel like uh, we're being ignored and not only ignored, but then the wrong decisions are being made in our view, then yeah, as I said, you know, we'll, we'll vote against, um, we'll vote certain ways depending on what comes up at AGMs, um, make our voice hurt. Because at the end of the day, it's my shareholder's money, it's not my money, it's my shareholder's money. So then I, as I've, that's why I'm doing my shareholder presentation, I've got to go and report back to my shareholders. Mm. Um, but, I, but I do think it is changing a lot, uh, without a doubt. Yeah. When people look at the funds in the way that you invest, it's probably they probably think small caps, higher risk, yep. and they think long-term holding, potentially higher risk because you're taking yep. big yep. concentrated yep. bets. Yep. Yeah. How many positions are in the micro-cap? Yeah, fund? so in our small cap fund and micro-cap fund, I think there's nine each, yeah, so well, really small. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and... One of the, th- the issues with that, I suppose, I mean, you, you're, you're fortunate that you are in a close-end fund and, and you don't have to deal with fund flows like other fund managers might have. How do you exit a position? Like, I own that's a very broad question, yeah, but yeah. Um, do, you, do you buy slowly, sell slowly? Yes. Is that really your choice? If I could give a, um, you know, if, if any of your listeners take something away from this, um, it would be always average up. Okay. You know, I'll, I'll, you know, it's a good thing I think to average up. You yeah. know, to average up into investments that have proven their ability in the short term or medium term, and you feel more comfortable, and you feel like there's a 
there is a strategy that is evolving over time and you can see the return profile being developed. That's how we tend to enter in positions, um, albeit I'm not going to lie, we have averaged down before and sometimes you do. Um, but, you know, ultimately when you're trying to get out of an investment, there's probably three ways. You know, the worst way is the investment simply just doesn't go according to plan for whatever reason, you know, and, and subsequently you decide that your risk return profile relative to what else you can invest in is, is not adequate anymore. So you have to exit and then says, well, that's fine, but how do you exit? And it's like, well, you, you exit at a, at a big discount. Mm. You know, there is a price for everything. Um, but sometimes that price will be 30, 40, 50% lower than what you paid for it or even more if, it, if it's a really bad investment. So that's how you get out in the worst case scenario. Thankfully, we've never had any that have gone into liquidation or administration. The second way is, well, you know, I suppose over time the strategy and the execution goes according to plan, but in hindsight, the financial benefits and the return profile wasn't what you expected. And so that's a long-term investment that's gone nowhere. Um, and you probably get out you know, just over time um, at a fair price, maybe the same price as what you paid, and that's happened a couple of times. And the best way to get out is obviously to have an investment, A, that goes according to plan and this is how the Australian equity market works unfortunately is you know, your micro cap investment goes according to plan profit grows multiple grows up as well because people feel more comfortable so therefore mm-hmm. the share price goes up they might raise some money you know to acquire a business or expand so therefore it gets bigger falls into the universe of you know the magical hundred million dollar market mm-hmm. cap figure so then all these other funds go well now I can invest in it because it's big enough so therefore we tend to sell into a lot of bigger funds because yep. it falls into their universe. That's the best way to get out of an investment because it proves it, proved it has worked or the other way is corporate takeover. Yep. Someone goes, well, thanks very much. The equity market's not valuing this correctly, so I'll just lob a short-term bid and, and, and take everyone out. You touched on something before about well, firstly buying up and then earlier you said tailwinds. Would you describe yourself as a bottom-up investor? So yeah, company by like company. When you are looking at tailwinds, I suppose, um, can you give us some examples of recent tailwinds that you've identified? Yeah, yeah. so my, on, on my whole roadshow presentation's about it, so it's easy for me. Um, but, you know, the, the five tailwinds that we've we've picked in our presentation is, I think off the top of my head, so the first one is, you know, you say infrastructure spend in Australia. I know everyone rolls their eyes, but, um, <laughs> you know, if you, as I said, if, if you look at the CIMIC presentation, which is one of the largest contractors in Australia, you know, I think the, the forecast now for transport infrastructure projects is now out to 2023. Hmm. Like, I know, I think Melbourne's overtaking Sydney as in infrastructure spend over the next couple of years. And I know in Sydney, we're spending a fortune. Hmm. So I'm sure you guys are about to as well. Another one is, you know, MBN. Um, unfortunately, because it's probably not based on the world's best technology. So not only more households got to be activated, in our view, whether or not labor gets in, there'll be whole lot of change in regards to making more of it fiber and and whatnot Mm. so therefore mbn's going for at least another 10 years not let alone the maintenance spend um then we've put in other things cyber security i'm sure you as a digital business i know Mm. nails we've had our um not issues but our you know you come across something they're called phishing emails (laughs) yeah um you know so that, that that's a big deal um agriculture exports as we we invest in a an oat and hay processing business and a, um, a blast freezing business. So you obviously look at all the agricultural exports to Asia and Europe and other places like that. You know, they're real tailwinds. Aged care, everyone's getting older, unfortunately, mm-hmm. including me. You know, that's a tailwind that's not going away. So that it just makes it easier. I think for us, when we take such large concentrated positions and long-term positions, I don't think we can think 
we can't have the attitude that we're smart enough to forget about the industry and just say, well, valuations are ultimately going to dictate how this investment translates into a, a financial return. Because I don't, I, as I said, I've learned a couple of examples, you know, um, that, that just doesn't occur. The, the market's too smart. Um, and one thing I've always been taught as a kid, especially from charters is, no matter how smart you are, there's someone out there who probably always knows more than you do. Mm. So, you know, when you see a chart tipping over or a long-term trend, and then, you know, you think, oh, in hindsight, that was a really bad investment and that's the reason why. Um, that's why I just think it pays to invest in industries where at least you've got some, even if it's a small tailwind, as long as it's not an atrocious headwind. Mm. Yeah. yeah, fair point. I don't know if it was you that did this update, but I think it's in your roadshow on now um, where you talked about, I suppose, this herd mentality um, with passive investing. Mm. In your opinion, where do you see the weaknesses in passive investing in, in with small caps? Because I'm interested to drill into yeah. that because a lot of people probably don't know this. Yeah, yeah. That's well. I suppose the ultimate weakness is they invest in small caps that I would say aren't small caps because ETFs are so large. So they're investing in the small ordinaries. You know, people forget the small ordinaries is literally. I think it'd be the the, the largest company in the small orders would be like the hundred and first biggest company in the ASX by liquidity. Mm. It's really not that small. Like I would consider that pretty successful mature mm. business so that'd be so for me that's the biggest issue with passive or etf investing in small caps you know then i suppose the ability to trade in and out albeit ETFs, i'm sure would do it well makes it makes it hard but at the same time i can understand why people use etfs especially in the market that we've had because everyone's so all nails look at your short-term performance it's poor and say so, sure if i if if i had an etf i've been in the afterpays and the altiums and the i can't think of another one um Zero. Zero. I've been in those um, because they're industry agnostic, valuation agnostic, um, and you're not. And clearly you've made the poor decision here. And that's a fair comment. I mean, you can't argue with that because ETFs are completely removed from any psychological biases or whatever biases the fund manager may have. Um, And we all go through it. You know, some of the biggest names Mm -hmm. in the world have gone through it. And, and it makes it hard because as a fund manager, as these ETFs get bigger, some of these valuations are getting bigger and that, that tide's getting stronger. So ultimately, it's going to say, well, this lasts forever or is the fund manager going to go out of business? Uh, that's happened. I mean, I've seen some well-known US managers that have shut down lately um, just because they found it too hard. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But I'm, I'm still an avid believer that in small caps and especially micro caps because you just can't get into that space as a big ETF. That's where it, that's where you can truly add value, but ultimately for a manager to add value, and I think you're seeing this lately, is they're going to have to own fewer stocks and take bigger positions if they want to charge a fee. Mm. You know, obviously the days of owning forty or fifty stocks are probably gone, in my view, because you just you can't hide from the index. You know, the index will do what it does, um, and if you're too close to that, whether or not, even if you're half a percent above or half a percent below, you just you won't have a business case. Yeah. Would you say that there are some systemic risks to the passive investing? Obviously, going through the GFC, you saw a little bit of it. And I think it was interesting when we went through the correction, if you call it a correction, we had at the end of calendar year 18. Mm. Even some of my staff members, you know, they hadn't seen this. Mm. And, you know, and there were some big moves. You know, you, you look at some stocks are down 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 35% in the space of a month. Mm. You know, I'm just... I just think there's a serious issue when some of these ETFs, and there's lots of them, uh, invest such big licks of capital in relatively small, more illiquid, I wouldn't call them illiquid, but for them they would call them illiquid, illiquid businesses. And when the liquidity comes out, 
um, it'll be interesting to see what's left over and how do they get out and what price. And essentially, they'll be price agnostic. They'll get out at any price. Um, so that's ultimately the risk. But I suppose some people will say, well, you know, for that to happen, you've really got to go through a significant change mm. in, in the financial or economic, global economic environment. And so maybe that won't occur like it did in the GFC or more recently. You know, I think there'll always be a place for passive investing. And a lot of our clients use ETFs, mm. uh, but a lot of people come to us because they say, I want a microcap exposure. And clearly we think you guys do it well, mm. you know, um, and that's why we exist. Are we ever going to do big cap equities? No. Um, probably because of that reason, it's hard and it's, and it's very efficient. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's your, your fish in the pond where you can get an edge, I suppose. Yeah, you like to think you can. Yeah. Um, while we're on that, when a client does come to you, what would you say is your edge? Yeah. Knowledge. Yeah. Knowledge and information. And that's gathered through meetings, yeah, through industry contacts, etc. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of it's not just spent with, you know, I suppose the leaders of the respective businesses. It's it's met at the pub with clients in mm-hmm. Bendigo. It's met at competitors, unlisted competitors, because they, they see our shareholdings and sometimes they approach us. And, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because you know they're going to come to you with a massive negative view on your investment yeah so you're always your stomach's churning a little bit while you're having this <laughs> phone call um but you develop some very good relationships and they always come back and even though they've got a different view to you um it just improves your knowledge base so meeting with a lot of these unlisted competitors uh, we've got a, a service that we use we can meet with a lot of ex-staff members uh, oh, right. quite easily and just using that over many years you know directors ex-directors i want to say customers ex-employees um, it just gives you, a, in our view, it gives you a great knowledge base to make a sound investment. Albeit, it may not represent anything in the short term. We just think over the long term, it allows us to make some smarter decisions that we can hand on heart say, well, we think this is going to develop into a sound long-term investment. Mm. Uh, it may not happen in the next six months though. Yeah. Mm. Okay. You touched on it earlier on, but I'll ask it anyway. Mm. The, a common thread with the guests that come on this show is that the people that I speak to are typically founders or the portfolio managers. Mm-hmm. Um, you obviously own a big stake mm-hmm. in NAOS mm-hmm. um, and you invest in the funds. Would you ever invest in the f- with the fund manager who, who doesn't have that alignment? No. And no. why is that? Is it the same um, reason with the companies? It's just... I just think you, you live and die by... You, I've been taught my whole career. You live and die by your unit price. You know, I, I had a shareholder come up to me in Perth and he was very interested in the NAOS funds and he was learning about the space. And I said, that's fine. To be honest, the first thing I said to him, I said, you know, here, 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 these are four managers that I would invest my own money with and here's why. Um, and when you go through that, and I was only telling him because to be honest, I hate talking about my own funds. Mm-hmm. You know, I, yeah. just, I find it a bit embarrassing. And those four managers, when I look at it, um, they're all founder-led. They would all have a lot of skin in the game. And I think I know, even though we're, we're, I wouldn't consider us a successful funds management business yet, um, I know how hard it is um, and what's required, hopefully, um, to be successful and to make it work. And I just think if you don't have everything or a lot mm. invested, as you know, running your own business, I just don't think you can have the same commitment, passion and dedication to make the best decision for your investors because if it's your money that hurts and believe me I'm hurting after the last six months um, 
you know, I'll do everything I can to make the next best decision and ultimately that should benefit me and then it'll benefit my shareholders. Mm-hmm. If you if you don't and if you can trade personally and, you know, invest in other stocks, I just think it gets very grey. Um, and I think that's a, that's a deep, dark place that I don't really want to go down, to be honest. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, okay, you said it earlier on, you do road shows. Yeah. You do, is it two a year in each of the major cities. capital cities? Yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah. I sp- can anyone come along to that or is it yeah, no, strictly yeah, get, No, yeah, we are, as someone told us, it was a little bit disgruntled when they were signing in on Adelaide. He was not a shareholder, but as he rightfully said, you don't have to be a shareholder. So, you know, anyone and everyone comes and that's the idea. The idea is just, uh, you know, as I said to you at the beginning, I actually enjoy it because I find I'm quite transparent and a bit cynical, but pretty objective. Yep. Um, and they can just get to hear it from the horse's mouth. And especially when things are good or things are bad, they get to ask me, why'd you make that decision? Why do you still believe it's a good investment? Um, and it's, it's just a good way to meet your shareholder base because we've got, we've got 8,000 yeah. investors now. So, you know, you've got to try and do your best to see as many as you can. And you get a few coming along to the events, no doubt? Yeah, so we'll get 600, I think, this time, like across the country. That's which, great. I don't know if it's good or bad, but, you know, when I, when I started, I remember doing my first Perth one and I flew all the way to Perth. I think we had five people. Well, wow. So, you know. You've you got to start somewhere. Yeah, that you do. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, exactly. you do. Um, you've got the NAOS website. Mm-hmm. There's a blog and insights page there. Yeah. There's a newsletter that, that listeners can subscribe to. Yeah, so we do a... Obviously, we've got our month-end reports if anyone wants to read those. But the one we get most views to is we do a CEO insight letter once a week. And it's literally just quotes that we've found from... Like we'll go through transcripts off Bloomberg where so like today the JB Hi-Fi mm-hmm. conference call will be on. So Bloomberg, because it's so expensive, will uh, give you a digital transcript um, and we'll go through and just highlight some of the key quotes and we'll give people a summary of some of the key quotes that we think are quite relevant. Mm-hmm. And we send that out weekly. And surprisingly, and there's actually a lot of managing directors and you know more influential people on that list. Mm-hmm. So people tend to read that as opposed to our newsletters, but yeah, you can sign up for, for as much or as little as you want. Yeah. Great. You have a podcast as well. Yeah, we are. Uh, was you uh, you start the new year obviously with your business goals as I'm sure you have, and the the idea was one of my big ones. Albeit I'm 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 probably the idiot who says well, this is what I would like to do, but I'm not willing to do it. Um, <laughs> is it was was a podcast, and the reason why is I listen to a number of podcasts on my phone. Mainly, mm-hmm. you probably do as well. They're mm-hmm. obviously in the US. I remember listening to one. His topic was on Howard Schultz, the Starbucks guy, who's mm-hmm. now maybe, maybe not running to, for, for president. I found it great. And I just thought there'd be, a, there are some in Australia, but I think there aren't many in Australia that do it with, and I could be wrong, um, you know, listed businesses in that mid cap, small cap space, especially people who I would consider in very high regard. Yep. Um, so, pleasingly, my team, um, uh, unfortunately for them sort of picked it up and we, we've done three so we interviewed the founder of net wealth the founder of molus and company in australia mm-hmm. um he's the chairman of the swans what was the other one i forgot the other on oh, the founder of credible um i think it's interesting so i think for me especially running my own business i'm very intrigued to see how they got their leg up you know how did they how long do they have to persist for and mm. you know uh, people key to their business how do you know it's a big one for running my own business the people businesses how do they incentivize people how do they keep them interested how do they bring them along for the journey mm. um because i found as our business gets bigger stuff becomes more challenging keeping them involved they want to take, make more decisions you know things like that mm. um 
So hopefully we, I think the hardest thing for us will be try and get enough businesses who are willing to come mm. on the podcast for us. Well, that's always the, the challenge, I think, with these types of shows. But um, I suppose you get access with your, your research as well. Um, I noticed there was a blog update from you guys um, listing, I think it was 10 podcasts of 2018. Mm. And um, Invest Like the Best was on there, but also um, How I Built This. Yep. Great podcast. Like yeah, we yeah. listen to that quite a lot. My always, I like the... Um, He's a bit of he's a random American, but the Bloomberg one uh, with Barrow Richholz. Oh, yeah. So he's, Masters in Business? Yeah, Masters in Business. I mean, yeah. sometimes you get some weird ones, but I've, sometimes I think you get some good ones. But I'll listen, yeah, listen to How I Built This. I remember the one listening to um, was a really good one, the founder of Dyson, was it Jamie? Oh, yeah. Dyson, that's yeah, James. That's, yeah. yeah, it's an unreal podcast. Some yeah, great stories fantastic. out there. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, to be honest, I think it comes back to the way we in, to diverge for a second, comes back to the way we invest in Australia. So I think you look at some of these stories. It bears no recollection of the Australian equity market. I mean, you'd almost fall asleep with some of these businesses, you know, the way they're run and, you know, mm. how, how short-term they are. If you look at some of the businesses that really innovate and want to change and make a difference and take a long-term view, I mean, how many are there? Mm. I mean, I can't think of many. Like, everyone will refer to CSL. And that's why Aussie big cap managers probably struggle a little bit because they've got to own so much CSL because it's such a big part of the index. Mm. But it's been the best-performing stock for so long. Mm. Um, and it's a shame. You'd like to see, my view is you'd like to see more of that come back into the Aussie equity market because all the good ones get taken off. For sure. Yeah. Okay, last question. Yeah. If you could go back and tell a younger you something about finance money or investing, what would it be? Like with our own money or just... Just you personally. Could be something, a personal trade could be... Oh, look, I mean, I'll cop out and say, obviously, enjoy what you do and mm-hmm. work. And I think for me, enjoy what you do, persist. You know, don't... The amount of times I've been knocked down in quite a vicious way... Um, I think some people probably wouldn't get back up, um, but just persist and put your, you know, be transparent. Put your cards on the table. Don't you know? You can take note, but especially if, as I've got young, older. You know, when I was younger, I wasn't like this. But you know, listen, listen to people's opinion, especially some older people around you. I, I used to be probably a bit obnoxious and think it was a mm-hmm. joke, uh, but I think now I look back and think, you know, that was quite smart. These people have been around for a lot longer than I have. So I think if you can enjoy it, listen to some smart people and persist and really, really get stuck into it. You can do whatever you want, whether it's in finance or industry or whatever it is. That's sort of what I would take away from my last sort of 11 or so years. Mm, Great. Great advice, Sebastian. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures.